So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal well, of making energy both cheaper, but also completely clean. And so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty. World's energy. biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more than. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Special. Hello, and welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Jeff McMahon. Today, we have a two-part examination of the way energy consumers respond to the changing energy landscape. First, we'll hear from University of Chicago researcher Koichiro Ito about his new study, which looks at whether it is more effective to persuade consumers to save energy or to change their behavior by charging different rates. In the second segment, we have Robert Rosner, a University of Chicago physicist and former director of Argonne National Laboratory, and Kathleen Cagney, a University of Chicago sociologist and director of the Population Research Center. They collaborated on a study examining attitudes towards smart meters and the smart grid in low-income neighborhoods in Chicago. First, let's welcome Koichiro Ito. He's an assistant professor with the Harris School of Public Policy. Koichiro, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. So there have been many occasions when society has needed consumers to use less electricity. The energy crisis in the United States is an obvious example. When Americans were asked in the 1970s, perhaps for the first time, to switch off lights when they left a room. California employed similar pleas during its energy crisis uh, from 2000 to 2002. Japan made a similar appeal to its, its citizens when it shut down its nuclear industry after the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear accident in 2011. These are examples of what experts call moral suasion, when we ask people to do something for the greater good. But there's another way, an economic way, to get people to use less electricity, and that's by charging them more during periods when we want them to use less. That method is rarely employed because it's politically unpopular. People don't like it. But is it more effective? Koichiro, you studied this question. Before we get to what you found, tell us how you went about it. Why did you pursue the question, and how did you conduct the study? Great. Um, so, as you said, you know, in the in the history, in many countries, we used uh, those two types of dif- kind of different policy tools. And but but if you look at newspaper articles, always you 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 heard that you know like moral suasion type approach worked well. Like people cons- consumed less, conserved energy. But those type of uh, newspaper articles usually uh, not based on like a data evidence or anything. And as an economist, we usually believe price is the first way we should think about uh, to change consumers' behavior. But also from energy research or non-energy research, we are increasingly aware that non-price incentive like moral suasion could work. So our motivation is we want to 
provide a database evidence uh, on this question. So we purposely compare uh, price-based approach versus like, more assuasion approach in a uh, randomized control trial in which basically we uh, randomly assign one type of customers to one group, the other customers uh, to the other group. And uh, so that kind of approach provides us very scientific evidence on the effect of those type of interventions. And to do that, um, we collaborated with, uh, uh, with the Japanese government and also many uh, different uh, private companies in Japan. Um, so it took a lot of time to prepare and also you know, conduct experiment, but this is a experiment in the field, so not in the laboratory experiment. This actually involves actual households facing different prices or moral suasion. So that's another reason why this evidence could be, uh, in a sense, useful uh, to think about uh, real policy. So that's, that's the background uh, of our research uh, project. And what did you find? Did one method seem to work better than the other? So uh, I think that's the takeaway message is each method has kind of pros and cons. So in a sense, policymakers can think about their situation to use either of them or maybe both of them together, uh, depending on their purpose. So the first, the moral suasion approach, um, it is surprisingly uh, effective, uh, but especially in the short run. So we tried uh, to look at the short-run effect, which is basically the first three times of policy interventions, how customers responded to that kind of incentive. And we found about 8% uh, consumption reduction in the peak time of uh, electricity usage. So 8% is quite big, and that could you know, like count for a few different power plants. So this could be a meaningful policy impact. But on purpose, we repeated the intervention over many days to see if this 8% goes up or down. And for the moral suasion approach, it actually went down very quickly. So the first three days, about 8% reduction again. But after that, basically zero. So we did uh, about 20 times uh, in the summer and the winter, and basically for the winter and the summer, both of them, only the first three days, moral suasion worked, but other like 17 days, it didn't. Um, but also, we also found one more interesting thing. You know, like in the summer, we had the first three days worked, and other 17 days, nothing. But we had uh, like a fall, like doing nothing, and coming back to winter to do the same moral suasion approach for the customers. And we got, again, like 8% reduction for the first three days. So this, this reminds us uh, one uh, theory in uh, psychology called habituation and dishabituation. So habituation means humans or any like species uh, could habituate to some treatment. So you kind of react first time, but not much afterwards. But another thing called dishabituation, DIS habituation, is basically you, you can cut the habituation thing if you, you know, don't do anything for a while and do the same thing again. So this has been documented in the psychology literature for non-human uh, species in a laboratory experiment. But in a sense, interestingly, we, we actually found similar tendency for humans in the field. So uh, 
to, to summarize for the moral suasion, it's effective, but probably short run. But the biggest um, um, advantage for policymakers is uh, moral suasion approach is much easier in the political negotiations. Um, so when you have to reduce uh, society's use energy consumption immediately, only for short run, maybe moral suasion approach could work. But for example, if you think about Japanese situation right now, they lost a lot of nuclear power plants and they have to have persistent reduction in usage. Then maybe moral suasion itself might not solve the problem. So uh, let me just get back to the price approach, if I may. Or, yeah, please. Okay. How did that um, compare to the price? Yeah, approach? so the price approach, um, the, first of all, the magnitude of reduction was much bigger. So with the highest price, so we tried um, different prices. The, the baseline price uh, was about 25 cents per kilowatt hour. So that's non-treatment price, baseline price. And for the treatment days, we had 50 cents, 75 cents, 100 cents. So in a sense, we can double, triple, and also four times larger like prices. So we tried different types of prices. And for the highest price, uh, we found about 17% uh, reduction in the peak time usage. So this is quite big. Yeah, and um, that's, a, that's a four times increase in the price per kilowatt hour? Yes. Okay. Yes. And even for the maybe two times increase in terms of kilowatt hour, we found about uh, 10%. Okay. Okay. And uh, I can say, you know, like the maybe advantage of price incentive. The first one is if you want to get like a big magnitude, you could uh, by increasing price a lot. Uh, the second one is uh, we found that consumers' behavior is surprisingly uh, in line with typical, like a standard economic theory. So in economics, we believe if you put higher prices, probably consumers cut back electricity more, but that's usually, you know, just in theory, that's true. But in our experiment, we found uh, exactly like that. So as I said, we increased price, you know, like twice, third times and fourth times. Each time we got more and more reduction in usage. So in economics, we just call this as a demand theory, right? Consumers' demand is based on their price. And in a sense, price incentive could be used to kind of control consumers' uh, demand um, by knowing how consumers respond to the prices. So that's why this is really, really useful uh, for policymakers. So for example, today we just need 5% reduction, but maybe for other occasion we need 10% reduction, uh, you could do that, right? And the last thing is, uh, for the price incentive, we do find that uh, the habituation uh, is much, much, much less. So it, that means uh, the price incentive is very persistent. So as I said, we, we did this um, repeatedly in the summer and the winter, uh, that we had like a 20 times uh, interventions. And for the price incentive, we didn't see much uh, decay in terms of the treatment effect. So consumers responded the price incentive pretty much same way uh, from the beginning to the end. So that implies the price uh, e effect is pretty persistent. Okay, so habituation is a case in which the effect wears off over time, and you saw less of that with the price incentive. Yep. I suppose the opposite of habituation would be 
habit formation where you get people to actually change their usage habits. Did you look at habit formation with the two methods? Great point. Uh, thank you for reading my paper very carefully. <laughs> uh, yes, so we do have uh, habit formation section. And you know, this is, this is, in a sense, habit formation, the theory, it, it has been developed by many economists, but actually one of the, uh, or a few of uh, important economists at University of Chicago the theory part. So this is quite interesting. Um, and we, we tested uh, in, by stopping the intervention, right? So as I said, we tried uh, summer and winter intervention, but after that, we purposely stopped uh, intervening anything, uh, but we kept uh, collecting the data. So uh, we wanted to see if habit formation happened, then in a sense, this intervention made you uh, made your lifestyle change. So even if you don't get those interventions anymore, maybe you kept your new habits in terms of energy usage. And we do find it uh, for the price incentive. So after we stopped uh, charging higher prices, uh, consumers' usage uh, kept being lower level even if they are paying now, you know, like a lower standard price. So that implies the price incentive made uh, this habit formation uh, for consumers who got uh, this intervention. On the other hand, for the moral suasion, we didn't see it. So we didn't see any uh, habit formation. So after our um, experimental period, the consumer's usage is just the same as a control group. So basically, there is no habit formation we found for the moral suasion treatment. So it sounds like the uh, price incentive, it's more effective in the short term, right? You saw larger reductions yep. in electricity use. Yep. It's also tends not to drop off over right. time, less habituation. Right. And it tends to form new habits. Yep. So it sounds like it's a lot better than moral suasion. Is there a, any circumstance under which you'd yep. recommend moral suasion instead? Yeah. So if you talk to me as an economist, I would say we should think about price as a very important, useful tool um, uh, for many things, but also for this energy conservation. So I want to emphasize it a lot uh, because of the reasons you just mentioned. Okay. But I don't want to exclude the moral suasion as a kind of policy tool. Because I know that uh, if you talk to policymakers, um, you know, increasing energy price uh, is usually uh, not easy task politically. Um, first, you know, like you have to deal with a lot of opposition from consumers, and then even if you could do it, uh, there's a lot of um, regulatory process you have to deal with. So uh, many times it's difficult to do it. Okay, so in a sense, kind of moral suasion type approach could be a second best, right? So if you cannot do the price thing, then uh, what can you do? And this moral suasion uh, is uh, politically very easy. So, so that's why I don't want to emphasize too much because probably as a society, we have been using moral suasion type approach too much. That's my opinion. Um, but in a sense, for example, let's say uh, in California, energy crisis in Japan, and also uh, I know that in Brazil, like many places, uh, we get energy crisis for different reasons. Then immediately we need cut back like electricity usage. Um, then moral suasion might be uh, kind of uh, 
useful tool for the short run. But eventually, uh, society have to think about the price approach for the long run uh, outcomes. Now, in the case of Japan, where they closed the nuclear plants, and yep. so they needed to drastically reduce energy use around the clock yep. and over the long term, um, would you suggest implementing these higher prices also around the clock? Uh, around the clock meaning? Meaning uh, instead yep. of having like a peak that you're trying to ah. shave off, you actually want reduction at all times. That's a very good question. Um, I think there, there is a misunderstanding about this. So, um, you know, Japan lost the nuclear power plants, which is a base load. So in a sense, all the time they lost some electricity. But uh, when Japanese people need electricity is really the peak time. So um, compared to many cities in the US, in a sense, Japanese electricity demand is very peaky. Because if you imagine like a summer, very hot, humid uh, time period, um, people use electricity only during uh, a lot of electricity, uh, mainly during the peak time. So uh, I think many people, including people in Japan, have some misperception that electricity is uh, limited every time. But if we look at the data, it's not. It's, it's still OK for like at night, but it's really close to uh, you know like 99 percent uh, of you know demand uh, you know I mean basically like supply is really really um, scarce only the during the peak time so uh, in other projects I'm running uh, we have been doing a lot about this dynamic pricing so uh, let's say we put high price only for the peak time low price for the off peak time to change consumers behavior and that kind of pricing works pretty well and that would solve the problem because as I said, uh, we don't need a lot of electricity uh, at nighttime. So uh, a final question for yep. you. You also uncovered some insight into the importance of providing consumers with transparent information about prices. Could you tell us a little about that? Yes, uh, this is exciting about energy industry right now. So, you know, like I, I actually have a paper uh, which looks at California electricity customers, let's say about 10 years ago. Um, so if you think about electricity billing in 10 years ago, but also actually in many places in the, in the US still, uh, what you get in terms of information is just a monthly bill, right? Usually it's like a three pages document, uh, a lot of words, uh, maybe a bit of numbers, but it's very difficult to understand. Um, so um, that was not good, but recently we have a technology to improve that. So in our experiment, for example, we provided in-home display, so like a small-sized uh, LED display uh, put on the wall, or maybe you can install on iPad. And on that uh, display, you can look at the real-time usage and also real-time price. So this is very easy for you to understand, okay, this is how much electricity I'm using, this is how much I'm paying. Compared to the old days, you know, like a monthly bill, again, very difficult to understand, and also like a one time in a month. Mm -hmm. So uh, we found that in our approach, um, because of this transparent information, as I said, customers responded each price quite differently, lower price, twice higher, third times higher, fourth times higher. For each 
price, uh, we found pretty different behavioral response. And that's understandable because now they can look at the price, right? Uh, but in my old paper I mentioned, uh, in California's case, situations are a little bit different, so not perfectly comparable. But in a sense, the, the main point of that old paper's conclusion was uh, consumers are pretty confused about the price incentives. Um, because, I mean, part of the reason is uh, non-transparent information. So I, I, I'm hopeful that in this energy industry, the exciting thing is we're going to get more and more this kind of technology coming in. And that's going to help customers to understand the actual price incentive and respond to it uh, much more uh, better way. Thank you so much, Koichiro, for uh, joining us today and sharing this information. Thank you. Now we're joined by Bob Rosner and Kate Cagney, who collaborated on a study of attitudes towards smart meters in low-income neighborhoods on the south side of Chicago. It was a study that unearthed some interesting discoveries not only about attitudes, but also about the approaches utilities and governments may use to persuade people to be more energy efficient. So I'd like to start by talking about the neighborhoods themselves. The research focused on low-income neighborhoods on the south side of Chicago, but you compare the results to higher-income, middle-class consumers, so it seems you must have reached some more affluent neighborhoods as well. What can you tell us about the neighborhoods you reached? So the emphasis of our study was the south side of Chicago, and so as we know, there is some uh, economic variation in these communities. Um, there was also some very interesting variation by race and ethnicity, by age, um, by other sorts of demographic characteristics that we were interested in plumbing in order to understand how people reacted to smart meters. And, it, and I, you know, I think in sync with that, the, the smart meter initiative began on the south side of Chicago. So, um, you know, given the timing of our study, it made sense to look both at when the where the rollout first occurred, and then to try to understand some, I think, you know, important variation related to social class. Okay, and why was it important to conduct this study? So, um, uh, smart meters uh, ha are uh, reputed to be uh, a way of um, uh, saving energy and, and saving money. Um, why is that? Well, in two different ways. One is, from the consumer point of view, is in uh, enabling the smart use of their electricity. That is, for example, timing, uh, the use of major appliances, such as, for example, washing machines, during times when the cost of electricity is low. So basically, it's time shifting of the energy use to the point where the, the, the commodity you're interested in, which is the electricity, is inexpensive. Uh, from the utility point of view, um, smart metering is also about saving money. And the reason is that smart meters enable a utility to very quickly identify the location, the very precise location of service interruptions. So uh, there, there's a labor savings because they don't have to have uh, crews looking for the break should there be uh, some sort of blackout. And uh, so they basically the, uh, the, they locate the location of the, the fault quickly and get it fixed quickly. So there's a benefit both in terms of labor costs and also in terms of their own public relations because having a long blackout is in no one's interest and certainly the utility gets a black eye every, every time there is one. 
So in general, ha having smart metering and having it accepted by the public is important both from the point of saving money on the consumer side and on the utility side. And the, and the question is whether or not the public is ready to accept smart metering on those terms and whether the differences in terms of the economic class, the social class of the people that are, are the recipients of this benefit, um, uh, you know, th does it matter whether uh, uh, your social class is different than the average? Along those lines, um, you found out, first of all, that most people who responded to your survey are thinking about conserving energy in their homes. Were you surprised by that? Certainly I was. Uh, I wasn't expecting that. Uh, I think the, the, my, my, the real surprise, to, uh, certainly to me, was the level of sophistication that, uh, that folks that are, that are low income showed in terms of the energy use. They really got the point that these smart meters can help them, and they got the point that saving money is a good idea. They, 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 despite the fact that for most of us, certainly middle class people, like, like uh, I am in Akita's, sorry. Sure, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hope you don't take a program. Anyway, right. uh, um, saying for us, uh, let's face it, electricity costs are not a major cost item for us. So, so what's, what's so interesting is that uh, the folks that we normally, that, that one normally thinks of as being relatively uninformed about technical things, for them, the cost issue is apparently more important than for somebody like me, and they pay attention to it. Um, I might add that that you know one of one of the reasons we wanted to engage in this kind of research effort was because we were, to some extent, concerned that some of the messaging and some of the structuring around smart meters what those those were really aimed at middle class households, and so we wanted to know how effective right. they would be, in circumstances um, where people were right more resource poor. And it actually seems like, indeed, they were effective. Um, we found later that actually in communities that had lower levels of trust, that um, that incorporating smart meters and the take-up of smart meters seemed to increase the level of trust with ComEd. We were, we were actually quite surprised by that. But it seemed like maybe that created some kind of direct interaction or communication possibility um, that made people feel more connected to their provider. And um among those who expressed concern, you've, you've mentioned that there's a, there's a financial element to concern about saving energy. Mm -hmm. Did you also find environmental concerns? Uh, I don't think we, I, I don't think so. Uh, at, at least we didn't, let's put it this way, I don't think we really probed that. I think that's exactly right. And, okay. actually, and you know, our hope is that in our next study, <laughs> um, we yes. could delve into those sorts of questions. So getting sort of a better sense of, of scope and the extent to which people might be making those choices. I think our frame was more one of a household bundle and people are making choices about the various things they spend money on within the household. But I think, I think your question is a good one. Um, you know, were we really attentive to sort of this, this broader kind of concern about the extent to which something like a smart meter could make you a better citizen, right? right. More attuned to environmental concerns. Right. Another interesting aspect is that uh, there's a vast difference in, uh, on the consumer side and the, uh, the ability to respond to um, smart meter, taking advantage of smart meters, depending on whether or not you're an owner or a renter. If you're owner, you're likely to have, for example, um, 
a washing machine or a dryer uh, that you own, that you run, and therefore you, you can, should you choose to, do the time shifting. Uh, renters are less likely to do that, mm -hmm. and renters are more likely to be uh, using uh, laundromats, for example, and therefore there's a real question about uh, their, their efficient use of smart metering. They can't really take advantage of it, yet they do pay for it through the bill because the way the legislation was written, the, uh, the consumers are the ones that are actually paying for the smart metering. So there's a funny kind of issue here uh, that people that at the very bottom, the rent, renting uh, on the renting side, actually can't really take advantage of smart metering. And related to that point, um, I believe your study found that it's not always, uh, lower income people are aware that they're not, it's not always in their best interest right. to employ devices that, that shift time of use of energy. Right. Right. Could you tell us a little bit about, first of all, just what those devices are in simple terms, and then why they'd not be worthwhile based, for some people based on income? Right. So, um, so what a smart meter allows you to do is to monitor the cost of electricity on, uh, uh, on a time basis. You can basically tell the difference between certainly night and day, evening rates, morning rates, and so on. And so if you're aware of the metering, uh, what, the, what the, the price swings are during the course of 24 hours, then you can use as simple a device as a timer to turn on some device that uses considerable amount of electricity and simply turn it on only when the price of electricity is low. You could do that. Now, for some devices, that is a bad idea. For example, a refrigerator. You do not want to turn your refrigerator on <laughs> only at night. Okay, That would be bad strategy. <laughs> uh, but you might want to do that for a washing machine okay, or a dryer, especially a dryer. You, there were some interesting racial breakdowns in the findings as well. So you found, for example, that African Americans were the group that were most conscious of energy savings. Uh, is that a demographic dif difference that's controlled for income? Or does income play a role in that result as well? So we can say in our initial analyses, we still found a race effect even after controlling for income. Yeah. Okay. And is, what do you make of that? Um, you know, this is where, and actually Bob had made this suggestion earlier, but this is where actually some ethnographic research might be helpful, where we actually could go into people's homes and have longer conversations about the extent to which they um, are engaged, right, with utility consumption and are attentive to these kinds of matters. Um, you know, I'll also note that, um, you know, African Americans in the sample were, were more knowledgeable. They also had lower levels of trust. Um, and so I think that's something else we would want to plumb and to try to understand um, why people maybe felt, right, that, that you, you know, their utility providers writ large do not have their best interests at heart. Um, and, I, you know, I could conjecture that that might be about the extent to which people had service interruption, family members had service interruption, neighbors had service interruption, and so feeling then like um, we're not all about the same game, right? Um, but I do think that, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of survey research, and I think it has a particular kind of role. One thing I think this survey um, 
did was to suggest additional questions for us and right. potentially some multi-mode strategies so we could get a better answer to the question that you asked. Right. Okay, and your answer to this one might be the same. I think you found that across income brackets, white respondents had a higher awareness of smart meters, um, mm -hmm. but they were less conscious of energy savings. And that right. seems like there might be some sort of contradiction or at least some interesting factor going on there. What do you make of that one? Yeah, so, so my interpretation of that <clears throat> was simply that they're, those folks are a lot like me, meaning uh, I'm very skeptical about the savings simply because the, the cost savings uh, are so incredibly modest. Electricity does not figure uh, as a major item in my budget, my weekly budget. And uh, so the fact that I might be saving you know, a couple of bucks uh, doesn't strike me as w necessarily worthwhile. Okay. There were quite a few I, other... I, I should... Uh, yeah, yeah, worthwhile in terms of what? Worthwhile in terms of my time investment. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. <clears throat> so there were quite a few other interesting findings from this survey. Um, let's just touch on a few of those. They may not have even been the main focus. But the relationship between fear of crime and keeping your windows open was interesting. Actually, that is something I too wanted to raise, that you know, fully 46% of our respondents reported that they were not comfortable keeping their windows open because they were fearful of crime and, and criminal activity more broadly. And so that has to have implications for the extent to which people make choices about right, when to turn on the air conditioning. Um, also, just sort of in related work, uh, we found in neighborhoods where people had, had greater fear of crime, they were more likely to die during our 1995 Chicago heat wave. Oh, and we presume that that's because people were kind of cooped up. And, you know, when they were sort of engaging in the calculus of whether to open a window, and then potentially also be at risk, they, they chose to stay, right, inside where it was warmer. Um, also, uh, Bob, you brought up the difference between renters and landlords. Right. There's a sort of a split in the benefits that the two groups enjoy. Mm -hmm. And that suggests maybe that utilities should think in new ways about how they encourage efficiency with these two groups. Right, right. Uh, so, so there's a third group uh, that matters here, and uh, that, that is the landlords. Yeah. So in, in the case of um, uh, owners, the owner is, in a sense, the landlord and the consumer. But in the case of renters, the renters and the landlords have rather different economic perspectives. So in terms of, for example, capital investments uh, in the housing stock, that money comes from the, uh, from the landlord, but the landlord doesn't reap the benefits of the investment. If you install, for example, better windows uh, or insulate the, uh, the roofs and so on and so forth, the, the folks that benefit are the renters, uh, not the landlords. Um, now, turn around, there's a particular issue in, in low-income neighborhoods because the turnover rate of apartments is, is higher in low-income neighborhoods than it is in mi middle-class neighborhoods. And that has the following consequence, the consequence that you might ask, well, uh, shouldn't the renter maybe make the investment uh, for energy saving? 
And in a low-income neighborhood, if you're going to stay in an apartment only for one or two years, that simply doesn't make any sense. Whereas if you're going to stay in an apartment for you know, a decade or two, it does. So, so there's a distinct difference in the attitude toward making the investments uh, at the low-income end for renters uh, than it is for middle class. Did you go as far as coming up with recommendations for, <clears throat> for utilities or governments and how they could... Uh, well, actually, this, is, uh, this gets exactly at what uh, uh, Kate was alluding to uh, earlier, which is that uh, the lots of issues that we uncovered, and in particular, uh, that uh, it, would be, it would be a really good idea to go back to these, these folks uh, do some more surveys, asking exactly this, the question that you just asked, which is what kinds of things uh, would in fact be appropriate for those folks? What, what would they accept from a policy point of view in terms of accepting uh, energy saving uh, investments? And actually we talked about some other kinds of things like field tests or experiments, right, where you might vary the incentive structure and potentially targeting landlords only right. and seeing sort of, you know, what might incentivize landlords to, to make these certain sorts of choices when indeed it, it's not necessarily a direct benefit to them. Right. right. An example of this would be, uh, for example, in areas where uh, there's some degree of, uh, if rent control ever happens, right. mm -hmm. uh, that you might, uh, or... Uh, in a housing stock where the fair fraction of the housing stock is pay, uh, the rentals are paid through um, Section 8 vouchers. Uh, you might Im you ma imagine direct intervention on the part of the government in changing the, the cost structure for the landlords so right. that they're incentivized to actually do something about energy savings. Terrific. Are, are there any other points that came out in the study that you'd like to raise? I think, I think Kate had it exactly right, which is what was so really neat about this study was all the questions that we hadn't realized should have been asked that we now know. Right. We should have asked, and we want to ask. But I think, yeah, that's the pluralistic nature, right? Yes. Of social research, that I, I think it does. I mean, it's a, it's yeah. a first step, and this gave us a representative um, snapshot of how people are reacting to this particular kind of initiative right on the part of the utility and it did lead us then to ask really important questions we saw very interesting variation as we mentioned earlier by these demographic characteristics by neighborhood by other sorts of features so that I think then suggests a next step where we might do something that's more in-depth a more structured kind of interview where we could ask some of the questions that you raised the other point is that one of the pleasant things about doing this is it's kind of fun for me to work with a social scientist. I don't know about her, how she feels about <laughs> physicists. <laughs> but uh, certainly, I, I, you know, do, for, for physicists doing, working on a social science project is kind of fun. No, and I would say, <laughs> I would only underscore that point, and I would say Bob knows so much about right, the nature of utility consumption and electricity. These are things I have no substantive knowledge of. And I think, I don't know, I'd like to think this is a great example of bringing two very different sorts of disciplines together to shape the right kinds of questions that hopefully at some point could actually have an impact from a policy perspective. And uh, thanks to both of you for coming together here today to share your findings with us. It's a pleasure. Great, thank you. Thank you. And thanks to all our listeners as well. Please remember to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including at the EPIC website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm your host, Jeff McMahon.